Let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 32. Grace is amazing, isn't it? And, and the, one of the most amazing things about grace is that it secures the forgiveness of our sin and introduces us into a brand new life. And so grace is so amazing in all of our lives. I want us to read Psalm 32 for uh, our scripture reading this morning. It's not the text of the message, but it's the scripture reading that we're going to be uh, doing this morning. Now, Psalm 32 is one of the three psalms of David's repentance. And Psalm 32 describes, it's David describing the joy of being forgiven after that horrible year he spent in deep conviction of sin from the sins, the grievous sins he committed. And so now he's forgiven and he's excited about his forgiveness. Now Psalm 32 has two different parts to it that are in the first person. And so one of the first person parts is David, as David is talking to God about what he experienced in God's forgiveness. And then the second first person section is God responding to David. And the psalm opens and ends with a narrator, if you please, speaking about general truth before the two first person sections. So Pastor Ryan and I are going to read it uh, back and forth, these four different parts to it. And I trust you'll follow along in your Bible and listen to the heart of a forgiven person. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. May God bless the reading of his word. It's an amazing psalm. The joy of knowing I've been forgiven is an amazing joy that uh, we have experienced as a result of our salvation and that we regularly experience as the result of our walk with God. What a great expression of joy uh, that David gives. Bibles and turn to Isaiah 
Isaiah in the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. Now that's, yeah, it's back there somewhere. Isaiah chapter number 5 in your Bibles this morning. Real love is red in color. The deep red color of blood. Blood is the color of life. The Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. Life's color is red. It's the color of sacrifice. It's the color of laying it all on the line. Yes, God's love was written in red. And we're thinking about that love here this morning. The song that we sang, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus, portrayed someone who perhaps lived near an ocean's coastline, would sometimes walk the shores of that coastline looking out over the vast expanse of the ocean and gaze as steadfastly as they might. They could never discern the coast on the other side. All they could see is the vast expansiveness of the ocean's water. I imagine that such a person walking on the shoreline of the ocean, staring out over that wide expanse, meditating on the love of God, thought that the ocean, perhaps more than anything else, spoke to his heart about the vast, unmeasured, boundless extent of God's love for his creation. The deep, deep love. Like a ocean in its expansiveness, stretching mile after mile. This is the picture nature gives to us of the amazing love of God. The bottom line up front, the bluff as we call it for the message this morning is simple. God loves you. He really does. And that love that he has for you is not puppy dog love. It's not, I love you today, but I don't love you anymore. It's not fickle. And it's not based on the value of the person loved. It's based on the depth of the heart of the lover who loves his creation. You. God loves you with a vast, unmeasured, and a boundless love. The Old Testament is given to us as our greatest illustration book. The New Testament even tells us that the Old Testament is written for our examples. It was written for us to see the illustrations and examples of how God has dealt with his creation over human history. We read our Old Testament and we learn so much about the character of God. We learn so much about what God loves and what God hates. We learn so much about God's boundless love for that which he created. In particular, I find in, in Isaiah a passage that illustrates for me a deep, Deep love that God has. A love that would finally, eventually be written in red. 
And so we're in Isaiah chapter 5 for a few moments this morning. Do you understand love? When's the last time you just sat back and meditated on God's love? Perhaps like what you would imagine the author of the hymn we sang, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, who might have been walking hour after hour on a sandy shoreline, staring at the expanse of water in front of him, deep in thought, thinking about the deep, deep love of Jesus that ended up being a hymn that for hundreds of years have been sung by, has been sung by Christian people. How about you, though? When's the last time you meditated on the love of God? When's the last time you turned off all the media gadgetry around you? And you just sat there in silence. And you thought about God's love. Why in the world did He love me? What prompted such love? What did he do because of his love? How have I responded and reacted to his love? What is the deep, deep love of Jesus really all about to me personally, experientially? Not just theoretically or theologically. I find... Isaiah 5 to provide an interesting picture. It's another song. We've sung a couple of important songs this morning. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. And we listened and even participated in the song written in red. I love you. Written in red. We've sung songs. We've participated and listened to songs. We've thought about. Well, we're we thought about the love of God. We're going to add another song. This is a song that is brought to us from a preacher that lived 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. He was a preacher to the nation of Israel at a time when the nation of Israel had gone so deep in apostasy that it was questionable whether she could ever have an opportunity to get out of that apostasy. He saw the northern kingdom ransacked by the Assyrian armies. And now the rumors coming from God are that the southern kingdom is facing the imminent destruction by the Iraqi army. Back in those days, the Babylonian army. And so judgment is looming. The country's in a mess. Rebellion against God's love is everywhere. And God raised up a preacher by the name of Isaiah. To preach a message of warning, warning the people why judgment is imminent. And to challenge them to repent and to turn back to God. In the midst of Isaiah's preaching, he sang a song. And he sang the song to God. It was a song sung to God about God's love for Israel. He called it God's vineyard. It's the song of the vineyard. It's all about the owner of the vineyard and his relationship to the vineyard he owns. And Isaiah sang it as a song to God about God's love for his vineyard. Look at it with me in 
Isaiah 5 verse 1, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my well-beloved. He's singing to God whom Isaiah loves very deeply. He calls God his well-beloved. And he sings a song to God of God. Did you catch that? He's singing to God. I want to emphasize that because in a few moments we're going to sing a song to God. We're going to hold in our hands a little piece of bread. And we're going to hold in our hands a little cup of the fruit of the vine. And what we do with that is the most worshipful song that will ever emanate from your heart directly to the heart of God. Isaiah said, I want to sing a song to God about God touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. That's the end of the song. But it's not the end of the voice of God. God says in verse 3, And now, O inhabitants, see, verses 1 and 2 is Isaiah singing to God about what God did. But now listen to God. God says in verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me, and my vineyard. He looks to Israel and challenges them. You've heard Isaiah sing a song to me. Isaiah sang a, a love song to me. It was a love song that Isaiah sang to me about me. And about my love for you. And now I challenge you. I want you to exercise discernment. I want you to judge. And here's what I want you to discern. Verse 4. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done. After all I've done, what could I have done more? Well, what else could I have done? I was looking for good grapes. I got bad grapes, sour grapes, wild grapes. What else could I have done? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. Wow, what a question. Coming from God to his vineyard. Asking his vineyard to pass judgment. Is it God's fault that it brought forth sour grapes when he was looking for good grapes? You discern. What could I have done more than what I have done? Well, that's, that's the song, beautiful little song. And now I want us to make some observations. I've got a, a number of observations here I just want to briefly make. Observation number one is that this song is about a land owner who possessed a hill that had a vineyard in it. That's what he said in verse number one. Uh, My well-beloved hath a vineyard a, in a very fruitful hill. Now, this is before he went to work on it. This is before he did anything 
with the vineyard. He had a vineyard. The vineyard was in a, uh, the, the, he, it was a fruitful vineyard that he had. Here's verse number two. Notice verse number two says, and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and so forth. Here's this, here's this uh, vineyard and and he sees value in it. It's a very fruitful hill. He sees value in this vineyard. Value, even before the value is real, he sees potential value. It's a very fruitful hill before he does any work. He sees potential. That's the second observation I wanted to make. That he saw great potential in this very fruitful hill. Here's the third observation. The, the third observation is that the landowner began to pour time and energy and hard work into this hill. What did he do? Well, he gathered out the stones. Verse number 2 tells us he fenced it and gathered out the stones. He took the stones and he used the stones to build a fence around it. He's beginning to work on this this vineyard that he has, he wants it to produce something of value. So he begins to work and, and invest energy and time gathering out stones. That's hard work, gathering out stones. Piling those stones into a wall and building a wall around the very fruitful hill. Here's a fourth observation. He planted the choicest of vines that he could get. He, he found the very best that he could find. And he took the choicest vine, verse number 2 tells us, to plant there in the vineyard. Here's the fifth observation. He built a tower, verse number 2 tells us. He built a tower there in the midst of this very fruitful hill, the vineyard that he's developing. The tower is so someone could climb up in the tower and see and notice if there's any animals or anyone coming that would mar the vineyard. Steal the produce from the vineyard. So he builds this tower to be able to protect his vineyard. And then observation number six is he built a wine press. He built a wine press because he knows he's going to get a boatload of good grapes out of this vineyard. And so he builds a wine press where they can pile all of the grapes that this vineyard produces. And they can get in there with sanitary feet. I want you to know they used alcohol stuff, you know, to clean their feet before they stamped on the grapes. They made sure they were sanitary feet. And they stomped on the grapes. And he knew that he was going to produce gallons and gallons and gallons of pure, fresh, sparkling grape juice out of these grapes. And then I've got a seventh observation. He dreamed of what he was going to get. He dreamed about the... Verse number two says, he looked that it should bring forth grapes. And he dreamed about what was going to come out of this, of all the hard work that he invested. Pulling out all of those stones, building the fence, building the tower, all the work, all the energy, all the time that he invested. He knew the choicest fight. He knew he was going to get good grapes. But here's an eighth observation. He was utterly disappointed with what he got. He got 
wild grapes. Little, sour, bitter, worthless grapes out of his vineyard. After all that he'd done, after all of his work, after all of his energy, after all of his time, sweat, toil, he got wild grapes. And so, as we read in verse number 3 and 4, the landowner asked the people that lived around Jerusalem, what, what could I have done better? What else could I have done? What could I have done more than what I have done? I, do you have any ideas? Do you, do you, what did I do wrong? What could I have done more? You see, this simple little song and story of this landowner and his vineyard was given to us as an illustration of God dealing with his creation. It's an amazing picture. If you jump down in your Bible to verse number 7, verse 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant vine. I, the, the, he, gave the, he gave the explanation of the story. He said, this isn't just a little love story. This isn't just a, a little uh, exercise in nursery rhymes. He said, I'm teaching you something. You are the vineyard. You are the vine. And I worked so hard on you. And I expected so much out of you. What could I have done more to get what I wanted to get? Well, simple story, song, and storyline. But what do we learn about the love of God from this? i got three simple lessons. Lesson number one, God sees potential in you. You understand that? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And God sees potential in that wretch. He sees potential in that wicked person. He sees potential in that drunk. He sees potential in that prostitute. He sees potential in that wretched person. Because you see, the potential is not in the ability and character of the person. The potential is in the work of a holy an omnipotent God who can change that person and make them into what he originally designed them to be. He sees potential in you. And the potential isn't you. The potential is him and what he can do in you and what he can do with you. Read sometime. You want a, a good time of meditation? Read sometime the first ten verses of, of Ephesians 2. And read how that, that God makes us into his workmanship. He molds us and shapes us, which he hath before ordained that we should live in them. He preordained that when I got saved, he was going to mold me into the character of Jesus Christ so that I could live a life of good works to bring glory to the God who totally revolutionized my life through his love. He saw potential. And when God has the opportunity to unleash his potential in the life of a wretch, 
He can do amazing things with that wretched person. God sees potential in us as the landowner spoke of it as a very fruitful hill before he had done anything. He saw potential because he knew what he was going to invest in that hill to make it fruitful. Here's a second lesson. The second lesson is that God invests enormous energy in enabling you to reach your potential. The potential that he saw that he could create through your life by his omnipotent power. God invests enormous energy. That energy is illustrated in this story as the landowner begins to build fences and build a tower. And, and he, he, he builds the fences, not because he wants to stifle your liberty. He builds fences to keep out what will destroy you. And he builds fences in your life and says, don't go there, don't do that, stay here, stay over here. And those fences are not designed to stifle you or to rob you of freedom and liberty. They're designed to protect you from the enemy. The landowner built fences. He built a tower. Because you need towers in your life where guards are posted to look out after your best interest. Your dad and your mom. Your pastor. Your Sunday school teacher. Your, your Christian friends. God invests time and energy providing you with, with people in a tower. To be able to watch for you and to take care of you. He builds a tower. He gets out of this. He works to get rid of the stones. Stubbornness. Hard-heartedness. He, he, he works. He works. He works. He's, he's given you, ultimately, Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. God's love written in red. Then the Holy Spirit who comes and convicts you and draws you to Christ and makes you a child of God and then lives inside your body. He gives you a, a, a Bible that is a, a, a wonderful book of love to help me to learn how to live to the potential that God wants to develop in me. He gives you a church where you can have Christian friends, comrades, that you can do life together with other Christians. God is investing enormous amounts of energy to save and sanctify the wretch in whom he saw great potential. God invests a lot of energy in each of us. And then here's the final, the third lesson, the final lesson. God expects his investment to pay rich dividends. God is not doing this for the fun of it. He expects a return on his investment. Look again at verse number 7. Verse 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant, and he looked for judgment for righteousness. Did you see that? He looked for judgment for righteousness. He's looking for something as a result of his investment. He's looking for judgment. That word judgment speaks of the ability to judge things, to discern things, to look at things and to weigh things out and discern what would be the right thing, what would be the wrong thing, what would be the best thing, what would be a, the better thing. What, it's, he's looking that out of your life will come an individual 
who has the ability to take the Word of God and apply it to the life situations they're in and to discern how to live to the potential that God saw when He died on Calvary to rescue you. God's looking for judgment. And He's looking for righteousness, verse 7 says. He's looking for judgment. That's the ability to think, to discern, to reason, to understand, to apply God's Word to your situation. And He's looking for righteousness. That's the right decision and the follow-up action that comes out of your judgment. He's looking to, to produce in you that which will give him people on earth who have discernment and then make the right decision and live out righteousness in a world that's corrupt. That's what God's looking for. He expects a return on his investment. But I have to tell you that in the case of Israel, at the time, Isaiah sang this song to God and told the story around it. God didn't get the return he was looking for. Because verse 7 says that God was looking for judgment, but behold, oppression. In other words, God was looking for judgment in the lives of the people of Israel, but you know what he got in, instead? People who were oppressive. They put down other people. They used other people. They destroyed other people. They oppressed other people. Rather than getting people who had a sense of, of discerning what was the best thing to do, he got people who saw that the right thing to do was to oppress other people for their own benefit. Do you understand what, is, what the Word of God is saying? Do you understand where America is right now? People who rather than do the right thing, because that's God's plan, they think the right thing is how can I use you to get one step up the corporate ladder ahead of you? How can I use you to get what I want? How can I use you for my benefit? That's called oppression in this passage. And so God's not getting the return on his investment. He's getting the opposite. Notice he also said in verse 7, he was, looking for he was looking for righteousness, but what did he get? He got a cry. What is that about? That's the cry of the oppressed people who've been beaten down by the ones in control. So instead of getting right action where everyone is blessing other people, living for others, you heard that lately? I hope you have. I hope you can remember one week at a time from one sermon to the next. Did, did, did he get righteousness, people living for others? No. All, he, all God could hear is the cries of oppressed people crying out to God. God, do you see what they're doing to me? God, do you see how they're abusing me? God, would you come and deliver me? In other words, in the storyline, God didn't get what he was looking for. He didn't get a return on his investment. And so... The passage ends with a series of, of woes. Let me just show them to you. Uh, verse number 8, Woe unto them that join house to house and field to field. This is talking about people who took the land of God. You know, God owns Israel. God owns the land, the geography of Israel. He said, this is my land perpetually, eternally, forever. It's my land. And then he assigned who could live on it. He 
divided it up to the 12 tribes of Israel, to the families in those tribes. They were all given a piece of God's land to manage and use for their livelihood, and they always returned back to God. That which was God's, all from God's land. We learn a lot about stewardship from, from that Old Testament economy. Well, there were some people who, instead of recognizing God's ownership, they were, they were trying to create land monopolies. They were trying to get your house and add it to your house and put this field together with my other fields. I'm going to build. And instead of all of us owning our own land or, or having own, uh, ownership rights to God's land that he put in our family, we're, we're going to get all this land together. Does that, sound, does that sound familiar? In verse number 11, Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink and continue till night to wine inflame them, the harp, the vial, the tabret, the pipe, the wine in their feasts. But they regard not the work of the Lord. He says, Woe to the entertainment-focused party crowd with their drugs and their... They could care less about God. Look at verse number 18. Verse number 18 says... Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as it were a cart rope. In other words, they, 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 all this sin on a cart and they got ropes, they're pulling it. They want it, they want it, they want to pull it. They live for sin, they live for iniquity, they live for all the fun that sin can bring. It's the focus of their life. Verse number 20, woe to them that call evil good and good evil. Put darkness for light, light for darkness, bitter for sweet, sweet for bitterness. Woe to them that are... Wise in their own eyes. Verse number 20 is the, the crowd today that has turned everything upside down. All of a sudden, what, what we have known has been sinful for generations, all of a sudden is good. Then you that don't believe it's good, you're the evil people. Right? Turn it all upside down. Woe to that crowd. Verse number 21. Woe to those that are wise in their own eyes. Romans 1 talks about the day would come when people would, would not have the ability to think and reason. They would be wise in their own conceits. But God considers them to be fools. And we've got fools, tenured professors in universities across our land that are fools. People that think they're so wise. Fools. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. Verse number 22, Woe to them that are mighty to drink wine, men of strength to mingle among drink which justify the wicked for reward. Notice they, they turn to their drugs, their alcohol, and their stuff, and, and, and they, bribe, they bribe, they accept bribes from wicked people. And they bribe to get their way. They justify the wicked for reward. And what about the righteous? They take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. They take away the liberty of the right living people. And they take bribes and give bribes to make sure that guilty people can still be free. Can still walk around free in America in spite of the crimes they've committed. See, these are the woes that God pronounced because he didn't get his money's worth out of all that he did for his vineyard. He didn't get the return on investment that he wanted to get. What return on investment am I personally? That's Israel back in the Old Testament. What about me personally? 1 John 3 verses 5 to 8 says, Jesus Christ was manifested to take away our sins. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested. He might destroy the works of the devil. You know what God, when God invested enormous energy and time in my life, he was looking for what he could accomplish to bring him a return. And what was his purpose? 
to get rid of every vestige of sin out of my life. So that I could become like Him. So that I could be holy even as He is holy. And He could receive the investment, the return on His investment that He made. So in a moment, you're going to hold a little piece of bread in your hand. And the thought should, should go through all of our hearts. God has invested so much. As I hold that piece of bread and I think about the merciless beating that Jesus got that day of His crucifixion. The ripping of His body into shreds, the pieces of His body laying around. And I pick up a little piece of His body. He did this. He invested this energy to save me and sanctify me. And I hold that and I think about what it cost Jesus. And then I ask myself the question, is God getting His money's worth? Is God getting His money's worth? Is the return on investment from my life Worth that which he invested. And then I hold the little cup. And in it's the fruit of the vine, the Bible says. And it's, it's there to remind us of the precious blood of Jesus. His life's blood that was viciously poured out of his body that day. And it's as if I caught just a few drops of it. And I look into that. Blood, red, grape juice. And I think, is he getting his money's worth out of the way I live this week? Is he getting the return on investment that he saw as the potential of what he could do with my life and what he could receive from my life for his glory? God, or are you pleased with your 401k named Mike Elstock? Are you getting everything you had planned to get as a return for what Jesus did on Calvary? And if he's not, then perhaps we should ask the second question. What could he have done more? Pray, tell me. What else could he have done? What else could he have done to be able to bring you to salvation? Have you spurned his love of Calvary? I love you written in red. Have you rejected the gift of salvation? Have you said, no, I'll, I'll take my chances. I'll wait till I die and see what happens. Have you spurned his love? Have you rejected the offer of his gift of salvation? What else could he have done, pray tell, to have convinced you of his love? Is there something else he could have done? Maybe more than what we read of Calvary? 
Maybe more than his broken body and his poured out blood. Was there something else he should have done to be able to get me? Or if we are saved and, and, and the Spirit of God is doing that amazing progressive work of sanctifying our lives. And at this stage of the Holy Spirit's development of our lives, we would say, God, I'm not. I don't think you're getting your money's worth right yet. And we would have to ask the question. What could he have done more? So maybe, maybe you could let those thoughts kind of rattle around in your brain in a moment. When we take and look at that piece of bread and realize what it cost Jesus. And, and if he's getting his money's worth. And he is getting his money's worth from a lot of you. If he's getting his money's worth. And, and you know that, that the richness of salvation and your obedient walk with Christ, your love, your passion for holiness. God is getting his money's worth. And as you're looking to that bread and you're looking to that cup and you rejoice, God, written in red, I love you. And now God has saved me and he's transformed my life. And he's getting his money's worth out of my life. You see, the Lord's Supper is nothing more than Isaiah's song being sung back to God in a New Testament setting. It's our singing to God about His love and all that He poured into my life. And then the produce that He's receiving back from me.